My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Shannon Polson. She is an accomplished author. She wrote The Grit Factor. She spent 10 years in uh, in the Army and, well, eight years active duty Army, three years in the National Guard, uh, served as an officer, was the first female uh, combat helicopter pilot flying Apache helicopters. I'm, well, for one, I, I'm just blown away by that. That is so freaking cool and then uh and then your your education you've got multiple degrees um duke dartmouth uh where else did you go there was another university wasn't there yeah. my mfa was at seattle pacific university so yeah uh quite accomplished i'm i'm intrigued to well i'm i'm really curious i i want to find out about your life growing up, what what are some things that shaped you? I'm pretty sure I read that you uh, were born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I w- would imagine that that's not uh, an easy life either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I do think that was a great, uh, a great place to start out. And I'm really grateful for that. My dad had been drafted out of law school, actually, for Vietnam. And, uh, and as an Army JAG officer, was sent to Anchorage, to Fort Richardson instead, and served his four years, and then uh, became an attorney in the city of Anchorage. So I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. And I always tell people that Alaska is a place where we have bumper stickers that say Alaska is where men are men and where women win the Iditarod. Uh, so if any of your listeners know about the Iditarod, it's a thousand mile dog sled race. It's um, pretty hardcore and intense and women have won that. Uh, and it's not by division. It's just all in, you know, it's anybody who competes. So certainly it was a place to grow up and see uh, uh, where women and men are, are both expected to pull their weight because everybody's got to pull their weight in an environment that is um, not very forgiving. At some point you made the decision to join the army or did you did you start off in the national guard and then go active duty or the other yeah. well i went to college at duke so that was a pretty major shift from anchorage alaska down to north carolina for sure the biggest culture shock of my life i like to say and uh and you know my dad had asked me as i was um you know i was a I was an athlete growing up. I was a swimmer and a skier and a runner. Um, I was a, you know, on the debate team, played piano, uh, all kinds of, of various activities, but I never had considered ROTC. I'd never considered the military at all. And my dad actually asked me as I was applying for colleges, he said, hey, what do you, what do you think about applying to a service academy or looking at ROTC? And he asked sort of once. 
I said, dad, there's no way, like, that's just totally not my thing. And, um, and I showed up at Duke and then I saw the, at some college fair, one of those early weeks on campus, all of the ROTCs were represented. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll just try this out. Cause I knew that college was expensive. It was really, it was a big drain on my family. I was the eldest child and, um, I was working two jobs on campus already. And so I signed up for army because I could be a humanities major in the army. You had to be an engineer in the Navy and the Air Force and I was not interested in engineering at all. So I signed up with the army and I ended up loving it. Like I loved the people that I was serving with, the other cadets who are the other students who are also in ROTC. I loved the cadre who were the instructors. And I loved that sense of connection to purpose to something that was bigger than myself, which was really, I, I think, a gift at that stage of my life in particular. Uh, so I did a two-year guaranteed reserve forces duty scholarship. So I drilled with the National Guard during my junior and senior years of college. And then I went active duty after I was commissioned and graduated at uh, Duke in 1993. Your influences uh, there at Duke and in, in the cadre uh, that you were um, training with, was there anybody or anything in particular that you can see a connection to with the, the trajectory of your, your life in the military and then moving forward? Yeah, I don't know if it was specific to the cadre. I mean, they were all very supportive and I think were, were excellent at what they did. Um, I had grown up, you know, really enjoying adventure and enjoying pushing myself as part of both my own personality and also my family life. Um, when I was 19, I had the chance when I came home from college for the summer to climb Denali, which is Mount McKinley, the, the tallest mountain in North America. Um, I had gone to airborne school after my freshman year and then started skydiving. Uh, so I had always sought out those opportunities. And it seemed to me that if I had the opportunity to serve, that I wanted to do the most interesting and the coolest thing I could do. And that was definitely aviation. Uh, and then, you know, right at the time that I graduated was right about the time that they lifted the combat exclusion clause in aviation. So as opposed to the years before where we were only allowed as women to fly lift aircraft, we were now allowed to fly any aircraft in the inventory. And so I graduated, I reported to Fort Rucker, Alabama in the fall of 1993 for the initial entry rotary wing and aviation officer basic course and uh, graduated as an honor graduate and requested and then was assigned the H-64A Apache attack helicopter. <laughs> it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Your your career in the army. What did you intend to leave after ten years, or had you considered making a, a full career out of it? I don't think I knew when I started out. You know, at all. And it's it's funny to me to think about these enormous decisions we make. You know, when we're twenty and twenty one years old. Uh, to to commit your 20s to something and uh, not even really know what that means. But I think that it was possible that I might have stayed in. I mean, there were a number of, of reasons that I made the decision to get out, one of which was just really wanting more control over my life uh, and realizing that that was the military is not the place that you're going to have that. Um, but I also I was looking at people who were senior to me at the time and there weren't a lot of them that were living the lives that I wanted to live. And um, so I didn't see myself in, 
in any roles beyond you know company command, which was really the most interesting thing that I thought that I was going to have a chance to do. And I think that that was right. But just as my last year in the military, I was working at a one star command. It was a echelon above core um, command, the 32nd AAMDC or Army Air and Missile Defense Command. And we would deploy every other month to these multinational exercises, looking at theater missile defense in particular. And I remember the one star I was working for asked me because they were just bleeding out captains in the military at that point. And he said, hey, you know, what would it take to get you to stay in? And I just, you know, threw out, I said, you know, it would be a second command in the CAV at Fort Carson, which I thought was impossible because I knew they were 200% strength captains and follow on foreign area officer assignment. And of course, he delivered exactly that uh, at the same time that I got my acceptance into business school at the Tuck School at Dartmouth. And I realized that that general wasn't going to always be there, you know, like he had been able to ask me that question and, and intervene at that point. But that at, uh, at the end of the day, he wasn't always going to be there. And it's, it typically comes down to needs of the army. Right. And so I wanted to have at that point more control over my life and, and be able to choose things that I thought would be places where I could best contribute. Prior to hitting record on this interview, I told you that there were some questions that uh, my daughter wanted me to ask you so yeah absolutely. um so if you could do it over again what would you do differently so mm. your your time in the military um maybe your education yeah it, would you do anything differently gosh that is a great question um, well, first of all, you must get her a copy of The Grip Factor, and all of your listeners should as well, uh, because I'll get into some of the nuances of some of that. I, I don't know that it's helpful to second guess the choices that we make necessarily. I'm really grateful for the opportunities that have opened up at each of those turns. Um, and yet, I would say that if, if I could do something differently without second guessing everything, I would have more confidence in who I was versus who I thought the army thought I should be. And I, well, I say that because as a young person, you really, it's very easy, especially in the combat arms to really buy into that. The only thing that matters is combat arms and operations, right? And it's it's what everyone thinks is cool and sexy and, and that's fine. Uh, and there is, if, if you love that, that that's great. I don't, I think what I realized at the end of those eight years is there were aspects of it that I enjoyed a lot and I, I certainly excelled, but it wasn't my love for the long term. And, uh, and I had the opportunity a couple of years before I got out, a general asked me to apply to be his aide. And I turned it down out of um, kind of ignorance and the inability to understand that this was an opportunity to really have control over my career in the military because I thought that it would mean that I was sort of selling out of this operational cool stuff that I was doing. And that was really wrong. <laughs> and I wish that I'd had a bit more wisdom uh, and also that I had had somebody that I could talk to about those opportunities and making those decisions. Um, because I think that could have set me on a different trajectory where I did serve uh, in uniform longer. Now, I don't, I don't wish that I did. I'm very happy with how my life has, has turned out and the decisions that I've made and the opportunities I've had. Um, but at the same time, I think that could have changed that trajectory in a meaningful way. And I didn't have anybody advising me. I didn't know enough to look for that advice. Uh, and I didn't know enough. I wasn't wise enough 
to be able to understand that, hey, operations is one of many ways that you can serve. And, and at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's, it's no better than any other. We all serve in, in various ways and capacities. So, so I think that would be probably my answer. That's a great question, by the way. I've never been asked that. Now, were there supportive men and did anyone surprise you? Like maybe you assumed someone would be against you, but was actually for you. There were absolutely supportive men. There, I, you know, the military, just like any other very large organization, is truly the cross section of the population, right? It's it's really a bell curve. Um, that means you're you're abs there are not as many people in the absolute upper range of that bell curve, but they are there. And I served with some of the best people that I will ever know, best human beings that I will ever know, most of whom were men because there were <laughs> there weren't any other women. So yeah, I was very, very fortunate. My first position as a lieutenant to have an outstanding battalion commander. He taught me a ton about leadership. And perhaps even more importantly, and for those who understand the military structure, I'm not sure if your audience is, is familiar with that or not, but um, but you certainly have this very hierarchical structure. So I worked for generally a captain who would work for a major who would work for the battalion commander. But that battalion commander had a wife who was also a battalion commander. And he didn't have any issues at all. Not only did he not have issues, he was highly supportive of any lieutenant, no matter what their gender, no matter what anything, as long as you were really focused and working hard and, and performing exceptionally, he was a huge supporter. So I was very grateful. And he, he taught me, I remember the one thing that I remember from him more than any other was when he pinned on the silver bars of the first lieutenant of my first promotion. And he said, the only good use of any power that you will ever have is the increased responsibility to take care of your people. And you understand that taking care of people is a sacred trust. And I love those words. I repeat them in every single presentation that I ever give to corporate audiences and organizations or, or educational audiences as well. It's a, it's a critical lesson of leadership, the most important lesson of leadership. But the second person that I would say was most critical was my platoon sergeant who worked for me. And, uh, and you know, he, of course, was much more experienced than I was. I was coming in as a young lieutenant. I was 23 years old. And, and this guy is probably 33 years old, at least, or, or even a little bit older. He was just an exceptional leader. And he was, uh, you know, in charge of the soldiers that were the maintenance soldiers. And I was responsible for all of them. But he really did teach me a lot about how to think about leadership, how to think about challenges and problems. If we disagreed, we disagreed behind closed doors. And if I ultimately said, hey, C, oh, I called him C, we all called him, it was uh, Staff Sergeant Couturier at the time, I'd say, hey, C, this is what we're going to do. And he didn't agree with it. He would put up his chin and he'd march down and he'd pretend it was his idea, even if he disagreed with me completely. So that's what, um, that's what real leadership and real followership is all about. And I was very fortunate to both work for and have somebody work for me that were able to teach me exactly what that should look like. There is a... Uh... Another question that um, I think is a, another great question. What advice do you have for women in military or male-dominated careers? Well, that is why I wrote The Grit Factor, among other reasons. It's written for women and men, actually. Uh, and really what The Grit Factor was born of was a young leader asking if I would mentor her as she began this same journey down to Fort Rucker, becoming an aviation, both pilot and leader. And I immediately said yes, but then I realized, gosh, it's been a while since I've served in the military. I transitioned through my MBA. I worked in the corporate world for a while. 
And also my experience integrating into an all-male field as the first one at Fort Bragg, not the first one overall. I was in the first like 10, I think, uh, but um, was surely somewhat unique. So how can I scale what I offer to her? And if I do that work, then scale the people to whom it's offered. And then I began several years of interviewing leaders in the vanguards of their fields. They happen to be women, they happen to be military, they're general officers from across the services, aviators from World War II to the present, a Navy submariner, a Coast Guard combat rescue swimmer, one of the first women army rangers, and many, many more. And those are the stories that really formed the basis of what became the grit factor. It falls out into three parts. It's called the grit triad, right? We have commit, learn, and launch, which is connection to the past, deep engagement in the present, and looking towards the future with audacity, with authenticity, and ultimately with adaptability. Uh, so I go into each of those three pieces because ultimately it's that triad that holds it together. So I think uh, in, in, uh, in a nutshell, you got to read the grit factor <laughs> and it's written for men and for women right i didn't want there really to be something pulled out about women specifically because this is about leadership it's about overcoming challenges and this is just as applicable to a man as it is to a woman okay so i just interviewed ben baker who is a leadership expert we discussed quite a few things but one of them that we were one of the subjects that we were talking about is you know, in male-dominated organizations or occupations where uh, women, there, there's a, not really a good representation of women in leadership positions. And right. what tends to happen in my experience, and I, I wrote about it, where I believe that what women bring to the table in terms of leadership are some of the most important factors that leaders need to have. And, and I'm talking about like the emotional, uh, emotional intelligent, intelligence components of leadership where communication and empathy, you know, being able to build relationships. You know, typically women are much better at communicating and empathizing with the people that they're leading, you know, being able to relate. And all these things are, are hugely important. And I, I feel like if there were more women in leadership roles in right. these male-dominated fields, the benefit would be huge. And yeah. I, I just don't know how to get there because typically in male dominated fields, you have a much larger presence of ego and, um, you know, reluctance to change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there's a few answers to that question. Uh, it's an important one. And I would start out by saying, uh, or, or offering a note of caution in saying that I think that women are as individual as men are and what they offer to any leadership situation. So there are some of us, like I tend to be quite operationally focused, very execution oriented, a, a bit to a fault, partly because that's my background. 
But there are other women that come from that background too, right? That will offer that like, hey, I'm good at a crisis. I'm good at getting stuff done. Um, I'm actually less good at some of those softer skills <laughs> and so, than some other women leaders are. And so I do think that there, women come to the table with as many experiences and uh, ways to look at things as men do. And so what you do when you expand the population that you're looking at to fill a leadership role is that you say, who's the best person for this job, right? Who is the best person for this job? And the, the studies are very, very clear that when you bring women into better representation on boards, better representation into company leadership, that your bottom line is improved. So when you're talking to a bunch of guys that don't care about representation, if, if they don't care, then just go to the bottom line. Be like, look guys, the bottom line is gonna be better if we have better representation. So it is worth your effort to make the change <laughs> so that we can all benefit from an increased bottom line. Now that's gonna take some work. That's not just about bringing women into positions. That means you've gotta change how you look at things. You've gotta change how you do things. That means you need to be go out of your comfort zone and be willing to grow and say, hey, I'm going to not just have better representation, but make sure that we really work on, and there's a whole chapter in the grit factor on the strategic skill of active listening. It's the most strategic leadership skill that's, that a leader can have, especially as you become more senior. And when you become a better active listener, that means you don't just increase your representation in a given area, but you have to stop and listen to those different perspectives and be willing to consider integrating those different perspectives. Uh, and if you need any kind of common sense reasons that this makes sense, besides the obvious studies that say your bottom line will be increased and that it's the right thing to do. I mean, look at your customer base, right? Look at the people that you serve, whether it's as a, as a fire department or whether it's as a company. Your customer base, your population base is diverse. The only way that you can meet them where they need to be met, which is how you sell a service or provide a service, is by having people who can understand them, right? I mean, it's, it's basic marketing. And so however you want to come at that for a male-dominated field from the practical bottom line perspective, from the practical, like, hey, the only way to understand this is to have people that can help us understand. Um, I think those are great ways to approach it. But ultimately, I would start with saying, you've got to look at the stories that you tell in your organization. And I'm a huge fan of stories. Stories are everything, right? You tell the stories in a fire department about, you know, the, the guy or the gal that ran up the stairs to save the cat or the dog or the child or the whatever those, those hero stories are. Make sure those hero stories represent that diverse population. Don't always tell the story about Joe. Go out and look and find that story about Jane and tell that story. Make sure that you look at the pictures that you have up on your walls or the pictures on your websites. Make sure that those represent the population, not that just that you're serving, but that you want to come to the table to serve. Because if somebody comes to you and wants a job and sees all white guys on the wall, you're telling that person that isn't a white guy that they may not have a place there, that they may not have the opportunity to progress. So I think you've got to really look at the stories you tell. And if you don't think you have those stories, go out and find them because they absolutely exist. But our culture does not do a good job in telling those stories. Women don't do a good job telling our own stories because we're sort of brought up to be modest or, or in some way, you know, dismissive of our own abilities. And, and that unfortunately does a disservice to the concept of story that we all share. So I think men can be allies in this process 
which will increase the organizational effectiveness by telling those right stories, by going out and looking for the women that might be outstanding leaders in those roles. I mean, because the other data that's really clear is that women will only apply for a position when they're about 150% qualified. Men apply when they're about 50% qualified. So if you're a manager or a leader hiring, look at that data and say, hey, I want the best person for the role. I know Sue isn't applying, but I know she can do this job. And go out and say, hey, Sue, I want you to interview for this role. So those are some of those various ways that I think men can be outstanding allies to really up the game for the entire organization. I love what you just said about, in, in my experience, like I, I didn't even know that there was data that, that supported that, but yeah, absolutely. Women tend to downplay their abilities and they could be superstars and they're like, no, I don't know that I'm ready for that position yet. And it's like, no, right. please. Well, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Well, and so here's the thing that's the challenge. The data is clear, not only that they don't apply until they're, they're overqualified for the role, when all of us should grow into roles, but also that if they do take that role and they know this, right? All women know this, <laughs> that if for some reason they mess up, right? Because all of us will make mistakes as we grow into roles, as we, as we take on challenges. When a woman makes a mistake, she is penalized much more severely than a male counterpart would be. And the, da the data is all there on that as well. So I think as a male leader, you've got to be aware of the data and you have to work to actively counteract these things that are in play. And when you do that, I think you can be a very effective ally. Uh, there's actually a book called Good Guys Out, which I would also recommend to any of your male leaders in male dominated fields looking to be better allies for these positions because it is about men coming behind the idea of change. They've got to do it. It can't be just women, it's gotta be the guys. And when you come behind that idea of change and say, hey, how can I be an ally? How can I make sure we all rise? We all increase that bottom line by bringing everybody's contributions to the table equally. It's only when that happens and that you have the opportunities that we're talking about here. You were part of, well, you were the first woman to ever become a pilot of an Apache helicopter. So one of the first, I actually don't know the name of the first. Of the first. I was one of the first, yes. <laughs> okay, so one of the first. Well, I'm sure that there was some resistance, you know, being that it was right after um, the the ban on, on women in combat um, aviation was lifted. Right. You know, that's a huge change to happen like that. And then you're part of the first group of women to come through there. I'm sure there was a lot of resistance to your presence there. There was, and again, I worked with some of the best people I've ever known and, and some of the worst. <laughs> so I would say there was that, that bell curve was in, in full effect. But would you say that uh, there are some lessons, some valuable lessons uh, that you could share with with maybe some women that are experiencing uh, similar types of uh, treatment that maybe if, uh, if you had had this knowledge uh, when, when you first went in there and, and met this resistance, maybe you could have handled things better or handled uh, 
whatever treatment came your way a little better? Yeah, no, I mean, and again, this is one of the many reasons for having written The Grit Factor and bringing my own story, but also these dozens of other stories as well and, and lessons learned. But I would say um, the most important piece is the foundational piece of The Grit Triad is this commit piece. And the commit piece is some pretty deep internal introspective work that all people should do, men and women, but especially in challenging situations is coming back to this place of owning our own stories of drilling down to and connecting to core purpose or heart purpose. Because when things are really, really challenging, connecting to those things that you've identified are unique to you and precious to you and have that kind of, of foundational value is, is a really important thing to be able to do. So I would number one say to do that deep work, I kind of, I walk you through some of those exercises in the Grit Factor, also through an online training at thegritinstitute.com. But, but that's really doing that deep work to connect to that foundation. Um, the second thing is, and I'm gonna look at the second part of the Grit Triad now, which is this deep engagement in the present. And there's a few things there that are, that are covered in the Grit Factor. One of them is building your team. And I wish that I had thought about that, I think, a bit more strategically as I went into what I had no idea would be as both fulfilling and challenging as the time and service was. But you really do want to be strategic about thinking about who is your team? Who are the people that you can depend on personally in a really foundational, intimate way? You know, my dad was always my rock for a very long time before I was married. Uh, and um, uh, it might be a spouse or a partner, or it might be a very close friend. So you've got that team there that you can rely on, but you also are looking for people who can be advisors that are maybe right around your level or just above your level. And you're looking for mentors who are outside of your kind of primary circles, but are good strategic advisors. So you know that you're not alone in this challenge. I think that's really, really important. The other piece to note on that for women is that mentors and for men too, should not just look like you, right? So women should not just have women mentors. Women should also have male mentors. I mean, that's that's also really, really interesting that comes out of both stories and the data as well. And then finally, I would say, and this is something that took me a long time to learn, is in this launch phase. So we have commit, learn, and launch, right? Past, present, and future. In that launch piece, that audacity, that willingness to take risks, right? And to really stretch yourself. We've talked about that already, how important that is and how women are sometimes more reluctant to do so for good reason, but, but still need to push themselves out of their comfort zone to constantly be learning and growing and excelling. But then being willing to lead authentic to who you are. And what that means is when you come into a, a, an organization or you come into a company, there are going to be norms that you're expected to operate within, but you have to be sure that you never violate those core values or that core purpose of who you are, because that's the biggest damage that you can do, is allowing yourself to violate those pieces, those principles that are core to who you are. So know that it's okay to be authentically you as you go into a place to lead. I mean, I was so overwhelmed as a 23-year-old going to Fort Bragg. I have my haircut super, super short, and I wanted there to be nothing the guys could say, right? Because they would say it. They would say, oh, she thinks she can be different. She can have long hair. It's, you know, I went and I maxed my PT test every single time, which is the physical fitness test, because I didn't want there to be anything to say. And then of course, you know, certain guys would say, oh, all she cares about is PT. And you're like, oh my God, you cannot win for losing. So you, you just have to go in and say, I'm going to excel and I'm going to stay authentic to who I am and those things that are most important to me. 
and uh, and don't let anybody tell you any differently. You, you will have to operate within a given context, but you don't have to compromise who you are. And there is some aspect of going into a place like that. And this does not mean that you that you turn a blind eye to things that are that are highly inappropriate. I'm not suggesting that at all. But there is a time when things are tough where you kind of put the blinders on. I think of those Clydesdale horses, you know, that are those moving forward. You put those blinders on and you just keep your head down and you focus and you excel. And if you excel, there's really nothing anybody can say, right? I mean, they can try to, but there's there, there's no foundation for it. So excel at what it is that you do. Well, one, I can't wait to get your book and uh, share it with my daughter. With a lot of what I am trying to do for the fire service and, and women in male dominated fields, um, I just, I, I think your book is going to be extremely helpful. There is, it's a book that was written by two naval officers, male naval officers. And what they recognized is the importance of men mentoring women. Yeah, that's so good guys. Yeah. yeah, that's good guys. That's exactly the book. Yeah, good guys is their second book actually. Um, but those are the two naval officers I think that you're talking about. And they're talking about male allyship essentially. I, was it, I think the first book is uh, Athena Rising. Does that that's, sound familiar? That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Everybody. right. <laughs> and you know, I actually on that topic, on that topic of male allyship, and I hope you will get both of their books because I'm so grateful for their work in the world as well for the men's allyship for women and le women in leadership. The other thing that I would say to guys is, and you're going to have to. Um, and there's various ways to say this. Uh, again, I'm not entirely sure what your audience is, so <laughs> I'll just say it very cleanly. Um, you gotta have enough backbone to be able to stand up for when someone is is um, needs to be called out. And and you see that environment, I am sure, in the fire department. I saw it my entire life in the uniform, and I've seen it actually out of uniform too. Uh, but when a guy is talking about a woman in a certain way, especially really any women, you got to say, hey, buddy, that's not cool. Or whatever it is that you say as a guy, I'm not a guy. But you've got to call that out. And you got to have enough backbone to do that. And honestly, if the world had enough men that were willing to stand up and actually be men about this, <laughs> I think we would have a lot less problem. And uh, and if you need some extra, I, I hate to say this, because this is this should not be what's required. But if you need to think about the fact that you have daughters or wives or mothers, I mean, whatever it is that you need to think about, it should simply be that you have respect for your female colleagues and your fellow human beings that happen to be women but men have got to call men out on the bs and uh, and and that will get you at least 50 percent of the way there that might be the hard stuff dave but <laughs> you can, but they can do it i know it <laughs> oh no absolutely uh yeah it's just there is such an issue with uh well here's here's a prime example and you know I, i'm embarrassed and i've talked about this before when i when i went to the fire academy uh, really there was two women in my uh, academy and 
they they weren't um it, i don't feel and i and i think this was kind of the consensus that nobody really felt like they were giving their all and mm. and then what that did because there was men that that failed out and sure. and then uh they did not they went on to get jobs and you know you know great but um there was this mentality and it was part it partly came from some of the instructors and it was, you know, yeah. it was this mentality that, you know, women just screwed up the fire service and, you know, they don't belong. And I mean, look, they can't even do the job. And, and it, and it was, I mean, it was in my head. And I know that I said ignorant things when I got on with the department. And I know I said it to women that I felt were the exception. And of course, yeah. they knew what I was talking about. Of course, they agreed with me. Well, no, that was extremely ignorant. And one of my best friends uh, took the time to to enlighten me. And she she actually was uh, the best man in my wedding. Um, ah, that's great. Phenomenal woman. She she retired from the department. Um, when when I got hired, I think she had probably 12 years on the department. She was pretty senior and uh, just a beast. You know, she could, she was one of these women that even though she was more capable than a lot of the men, yeah. she still, she still got treated less than. Right. And, and I saw it. And it was just, uh, and I and I still, you know, I try not to live in the past, but there's still that that negative feeling, that that guilty gut feeling that makes you feel icky when you think about some of the stupid stuff you've done when you were younger, and yeah. I just, you know, I I feel. I feel really bad for some of the things that I've that I know I said, and then probably stuff that I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but um, when when I got that moment of enlightenment and started really paying attention and and learned that you know gender is not a determining factor for one's ability to do anything, right. You know? it's it's that individual what is their makeup what it you know that's do, right no you're right they and have I, the grit you know yeah and you know what there are women and men who aren't going to make the grade and i think you've got to just understand how it is that you approach the challenge you know if it's if it's a woman or a man that's not making the grade, do you go to them and say, listen, hey, here's, let's, let's just look kind of at where you're performing. Here's what the standards are. 
what help do you need to get up? To, you know, if, if, if that's the way that you would deal with a man, then make sure that's the way you would deal with a woman, right? And I think that's, um, if it's motivation and you want to have somebody do a hard sit down, think about who those right people are. But no, there's no excuses for sure. But what we're looking at is exactly what you're describing with your friend, which is that uh, if you are making the grade, if you are excelling, then we want everybody bringing those full contributions to the table. Nobody should be sliding by. But the reality is, I bet you, you could pinpoint 20 guys that you've seen that were substandard that got through too, right? I mean, I, I know there were men and women. It's just that when the women <laughs> are, are so few that it's, then there are people that will make generalizations based on that. There's enough guys that, yeah, there's a bunch of uh, guys that are screwing up, but you know, there's so many guys that are doing great that, that the volume is greater, right? So that there aren't those generalizations made in the same way. So I would just right. caution people against making generalizations and know that when you're working with a smaller set, uh, that doesn't mean you can generalize. It just means you take each person as they come. You develop each person as an individual that has individual needs and strengths and weaknesses. And those may be different, right? But uh, decide what's important. People should have to perform to standards. There is no, no amazing woman leader that I have ever known who would suggest anything other than that we meet and we exceed the standards. And uh, that was my expectation for myself. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's just, um, cause I, I have thought about this quite a bit and I, I think in male dominated occupations where when a man makes a mistake, typically in my experience, whenever I made a mistake, I would get pulled to the side or even berated in front of everybody. Like you're some kind of idiot. And then men tend to shy away from behaving that way towards women. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that's, that's too bad because I mean, at the end of the day, like I've screwed up plenty of times and I had plenty of bosses pull me aside and say, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> get your act together. You got to, and, and I really appreciate that. I mean, I learn from those and I talk about those all the time with clients and organizations again, in keynotes as well. And, um, uh, and not just bosses. I mean, people that I worked with or like a warrant officer who technically I outranked but had tons more experience, right? And they'd say, hey, LT, you got to get this together, you know? And um, and I appreciate that. I mean, I, I think anybody who is pushing themselves to be exceptional needs that same feedback, right? And deserves that same feedback because if they're a professional, then they're developing themselves in the same way you are. So I think that's also the hard thing is I... It's interesting, I, your daughter's original question on, on people's treatment, it was interesting because there were some guys who were nicer to me uh, to a fault, like to, to a place where it wasn't helpful because I, I was out there learning to fly, learning to be a leader, right? And you've got to be pushed constantly and mentored constantly. So someone being nice to you isn't helping you get better, right? And uh, it doesn't mean that you have to be rude in how you mentor somebody, but you do want someone to push you and challenge you. And I think there were some people that were reluctant to do that. But I also think we have to recognize that that's the growth for that person to do, right? That wasn't, uh, that wasn't, that's not a woman's fault. That's the person that needs to grow into saying, hey, yeah, this is another officer that I'm mentoring to become excellent. And that mentorship is going to be unique to that person like it is for everybody. But that person deserves that same mentorship. And, uh, and that is part of the challenge, I think, in, in these kinds of integrations. Is there anything that, that we didn't discuss that you feel is, is important for the listeners to know about, uh, well, 
leadership, maybe your your personal leadership philosophy. I think we've covered quite a bit, but is there anything that we didn't touch on that that you feel we should have? No, I think, I mean, this is a great conversation in a very different direction than I often have a chance to go. But um, I think the biggest thing that comes out of both my experience and also the stories that were collected and the lessons learned and the research that went into the grit factor is really that this grit and resilience is critical, but it's also nuanced and complex. And it's really part of the fabric of an individual, which is where we come up with the grit triad this past, present and future and really get into the details of that. So um, the good thing is, is that grit is not uh, unique to to firefighters or military pilots, right? We all have it, we can all find it, we can all develop it. That science is really clear as well. And so I would encourage anybody who thinks, oh gosh, that's just not me. It absolutely is. If that's where you wanna go, you gotta do the work and, uh, and you have it within yourself to do that. That's a decision that each of one of us has the opportunity to make. So it's available to all of us uh, and, uh, and we can all build it and continue to improve. But. I'm really grateful for your questions and your own introspection and insight on how it is that we can allow everybody to bring their gifts and contributions to the table, because that really just makes us all better and all stronger. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been an awesome conversation. I, uh, I look forward to reading your book and I will definitely stay in touch with you because once I read it, I'm sure I'll have a whole new set of questions and, if if you'd be willing to come on again, I think we could have an another uh, have another amazing conversation. Absolutely, and you should probably get a copy for everyone at the fire department. I'm pretty sure. Happy to send you uh, signed stickers. Just give me your address. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I uh, I am here to tell you that yeah, that um, is not a bad idea. And as a matter of fact, well, here let me. Uh, you stop recording because I do have something to talk to you about. <laughs> if if somebody were looking to have you come and speak to their organization or do a, a keynote or even work work with them through your book, helping uh, helping an organization maybe change their culture or you know foster this this grit factor in their in their personnel, uh, how would they get in touch? Yeah. With yeah, um, I'm at shannonpolson.com is my website. And uh, you just reach out to me. I do, I mean, that's my, my primary income is through keynotes. Uh, and um, I also do both online training that I can license to a company. I'm working right now with a couple of companies to do that. Uh, and it can be purely online or, I mean, they're all different price points, obviously. I can also kick things off with the you know, with a webinar and then send them off with a workbook for a month and then come back and do a webinar at the end of the month. So there's various ways that we can develop training to meet somebody's needs. And, um, uh, and I, I've really enjoyed that opportunity to, to bring that into what it is that uh, the, the keynote space and, and diversify a bit because the grip factor, of course, goes, I mean, you have keynote, you know, typically is 45 minutes. I love doing them. They're, you know, they're quick and they're, they're targeted and they're kind of, uh, uh, super impactful, but then to really bring that into an organization requires for that transformational change really is about pulling education then into that. And then how do you make that part of your culture as well? So you recommend a certain website, would you go to your website to purchase your book or? No, nope. uh, anywhere Barnes you like, 
Yeah, Barnes Noble, Amazon, uh, go to your local bookstore. They can order it for you as well. Uh, it might even be there, who knows? Um, but yeah, it's available anywhere books are sold. And, and book orders, again, on my website, I have the, the information, but um, both the publisher at Harvard Business Review Press as well as porchlightbooks.com can give you book order discounts as well. So well, thank you so much, Shannon. Absolutely, Dave. Thank you. And thank your daughter for her wonderful questions and tell her I was a, a pianist as well. So I am um, a big fan of, of those multifaceted women. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be talking to her in a little bit. I will let her know what an awesome conversation we had. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. We'll reach out if I can do anything else, please. And uh, after you read the book, yeah, happy to chat more. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.